0: On Wednesday nights in the junior high and high school classes this quarter, our uh, young people have been uh, studying under the theme of morality, and uh, they have been uh, taught and have considered a number of subjects related to uh, that theme. This past uh, Wednesday night, uh, one of the matters that they had under consideration was the subject of modesty. And this morning, I want to align what we consider with that uh, particular lesson, because it's not just a young people uh, subject or matter. In fact, I can safely say this morning that it's not even just a Christian matter. Christians aren't the only people in this world that are concerned with Modest appearance or modest dress or modest behavior. And, and when when I use the word modest, there's, there's a broad application of that, but we're talking more specifically this morning about uh, dress and appearance. Uh, those in the field of research are concerned about modesty. Uh, in uh, looking and preparing for this lesson, I just I wanted to see how this particular subject impacted the area of research, medically or psychologically. And it's amazing how many studies, peer-reviewed, serious studies there are that look at how a person dresses and how it impacts uh, society. Uh, I know that employers are concerned about modesty. In my counseling uh, program, I have recently started... An internship uh, with an agency and in orientation for that work I received two pages of dress code things that they have deemed there to interfere with the work and the purpose of that uh, that entity and so even employers Most of you are employed in the secular world and you are aware that uh, your company in all likelihood has dress and appearance standards uh, that must be adhered to. Christian camps have a dress code and I know that some of the ones that our young people attend have very stringent uh, dress codes uh, that uh, must be adhered to. In fact, You know, Foundations has a dress code that says any shorts, any dress, any kind of attire must uh, meet the knees, or it's unacceptable. And why do they do that? Because they don't want to police dress and appearance. They don't want that to be an issue uh, at that particular location. Interestingly, I've read articles recently about athletes who are kicking back against the clothing that is supposed to go with the sports that they participate in. Mostly women who are part of an athletic sports arena where the clothing that they wear is just kind of prescribed and understood. And yet they, many of them are kicking back against that because of the message that the clothing sends. I say all that not that we get our standards from research, we get our standards from employers or camps even, or athletes in their attitudes toward their sports attire. I say all that just to show that it's not just overzealous Christians who are concerned about clothing and its impact, On people in society it is important for godly people to consider this subject because we live in an over sensualized and sexualized society and so we're not to conform to those standards we're to understand them and to know what God wants of us three points of observation, uh, but as has been observed often my points have points so we'll we'll do what we can with this here's the first one modesty is a biblical subject that needs to be viewed biblically if if we want what the Bible says about a particular subject then we need to look to the Bible for that not the preacher's idea not a set of standards that, that we have established because, you know, that's what we feel comfortable with. We need to go to the Bible and get an understanding of what the Bible says about the subject in order to make a decision about what's appropriate for us and what's not. When you think about that and the way that we sometimes approach the subject of modesty, there, there are several approaches There's the lazy approach that says, well, it's a gray area. You can't really figure anything out about modesty. And then we use that as a springboard to shirk any responsibility to try to drill down to what God expects of us. But for for those who want to say it's a gray area, I issue this challenge. A gray area is an area that is ill-defined. When we say it's a gray area, what we're saying, according to the dictionary, is that the standard has been inadequately defined. I don't know if we've thought about the implications of that. Because if we say something that the Bible teaches us is a gray area, then we're saying it's an ill-defined area. And that means God came up short and giving us his will on a particular matter. I don't know that that's what we mean when we say gray area. I think what we mean is it's an area that's not just spelled out in a, the Bible says, do exactly this. But when the Bible doesn't spell something out in one verse that gives everything we need to know about that thing, we can't just stop there and say, "Oh well, we can't, No, what do we do? We have to do some work. And we have to study the Bible and see what the general tenor of the Bible says about the particular subject. And let me give you some areas where we do that automatically and we don't even think about it. The plan of salvation. Every time I preach a sermon, unless, you know, I just forget, but I I don't rarely forget. I, I don't often forget. I rarely forget, I guess I could say. I give the plan of salvation, that a person must hear the gospel, believe it, repent of their sins, confess confess their faith in Christ, to be baptized in water for the remission of their sins, and then live a faithful life. But I can't go to one verse in the Bible. I can't even go really to one set of scriptures, a paragraph even, in the Bible and get all of those explicitly laid out. Some passages have three, some passages have two, one passage may have one. So what do I have to do? I have to know what the whole Bible says about the subject and come back with the summary or the general tenor of what the Bible says about salvation. And in some way, each of those things is connected with salvation. My point is, it takes a little bit of work to get the grouping together. Think about what we do in worship. We acknowledge that we have five acts of worship in which we engage. But there's not one passage of Scripture in the New Testament that outlines those five things explicitly being done in a worship assembly. We look at different passages and we see, okay, we get to peer into this worship setting and we see that Christians are doing this as an act of worship. We see in this setting that Christians are engaging in this activity as an act of worship and we bring it all together and we get a full picture about what worship is we approach this responsibility in that way without even thinking about it in many subjects and I would submit to us that when it comes to how Christians are to dress we need to do the same thing We need to get the full picture and not just throw it into an area that we want to call gray because then we're saying God has ill-prepared us to address the subject. And that, I don't think that's the God any of us believe that, that we serve. So we can't be lazy about it. When the pendulum swings, though, it can swing to the opposite side. And the opposite side is... I want a list from the leadership of the church that says this is acceptable and this is unacceptable. I don't know that those of us who perhaps have that view have thought about what that that really means. Because there was a time when it was inappropriate and scandalous for a woman to wear a dress that revealed her ankles. Would we adhere to that standard today? When we see a woman with a dress where you can see her ankles, do we think, ah, scandalous? I don't think so. And so to come up with a list that says, this is what is okay, this is what is not okay, we're doomed to miss something in doing that. The more appropriate response would be, to get the sense of what the Bible says about it and develop our understanding to the point that we can know what's appropriate and what's not. Even though times change, the standards that are accepted in society change and not that those always uh, dictate what is acceptable for us that, that should not be our source of authority and information. But we do rely on that to some degree. The length of dresses that covers the ankles has changed in the general understanding of society. So it does impact us some. But I, I to say, for me as a preacher, and I, I have my scruples about dress and appearance for worship. I I don't, you know that, right? I I have, and I have said before as a preacher, I have an idea about what I think dress and appearance ought to look like for worship but that's a scruple it's a personal preference that I hold by myself by but to hold you by it would not be appropriate we don't bind our scruples for me to say well I think this this and this about dress that doesn't resolve the problem what it does is it satisfies me Because if if people will live up to the standard that I set for dress, then I don't have to worry about being bothered by that and thinking about it so it satisfies me. The standards that you have may be perfectly in line with the Bible, but we don't have those standards because that's what I want. It needs to align with the Bible. So we're not trying to define gray area. You define it as a gray area. But as the pendulum swings... We're not trying to satisfy our own interests and desires. What we need to do is approach the subject from a biblical perspective and educate ourselves in light of what the Bible says and then imitate the standard that the Bible sets forth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 1, Paul, Paul said, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. We're to do some imitating. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12, the Hebrews writer admonished Christians not to be sluggish, but to be imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so I want to conduct myself that is consistent with and imitating of those who with patient endurance have sought to inherit the promise. And then 3 John 11 says, Beloved, Imitate not that which is evil, but that which is good. And so education and imitation would be a good way to approach this subject. We must determine what is appropriate and then imitate that standard or principle. And this really applies to to every area of our Christian living, but especially this morning as we think about modest appearance. My dear friend Paul Meacham died just over four years ago from a brain tumor, and I thought the world of him. He He was a brilliant man. He was a wonderful preacher of the gospel, and he was an individual who put a lot of thought into something before he put it down with pen or he preached it. Shortly after he died, his wife, April, shared with me a, a folder of sermons and lessons and things that he had preached in his tenure as a preacher. And in perusing that information, I found a sermon that he had preached on the subject of modesty. And so these three points under the second point are the points that he made relative to modest dress and I thought so much of them I figure I would just let him speak as he spoke from the Bible about this subject and so here are three biblical principles that will help our education in learning what the Bible says relative to this subject three biblical principles that will help our education here's the first one He pointed out, and rightly so, that it is shameful to expose one's nakedness. It is shameful to expose one's nakedness. And his study and demonstration of this point began, as you might imagine, in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve. After they had partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... They, their eyes were opened, the Bible says, and they had a newfound awareness that they didn't have before. They lost some innocency and they knew that they were naked. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 or 21, I'm just going to try to summarize some of the points here. You might say that they had an ignorant modesty here. Uh, They took, in response to the realization that they were naked, verse 7 says they took fig leaves and sewed them together to cover themselves. In fact, in essence, they made themselves clothing in response to the realization that they were naked. When God enters the picture at verse 10, he's walking in the garden and they become aware of God's presence. And so verse 10 records where God asks why they hid themselves. And Eve says, Because I was naked. I hid myself. That's interesting, the timing of this, because she had already made herself clothing out of fig leaves, but subsequent to clothing herself, she hid herself because she was naked, still naked. If you continue that discourse where God interacts with Adam and Eve, when you get to verse 21, you see that God makes them tunics of clothing and does what? He clothed them. Up to this point, they were not clothed. And so the point is, they had exposed their nakedness. They had tried to correct that and yet realized that it still wasn't resolved and God, by his own standard, made clothing for them to put on so that they would not be naked anymore. The point is... A person can have clothing on and still ignorantly be revealing their nakedness because they haven't clothed themselves based on God's expectations. She was clothed, but she wasn't clothed. God clothed them as he deemed appropriate. There's also what we might call inadvertent immodesty. And what I mean by that is what's demonstrated relative to the priest under the Levitical system. They had the responsibility to interact with the altar relative to the sacrifices that were being made to God. But there's some interesting instruction given in Exodus about the priest and their clothing. They had an elaborate uh, outfit that was suitable for their work, and they had A garment that probably would look more like a skirt uh, for a man during that time. I'm glad that we're not in that time today, as I'm sure many of you men are. Clothing has changed. But there was a problem with what, just looking at them directly, there was a problem that wasn't evident in their dress and their appearance. You see, when they would go up steps, the underneath of that garment would reveal their nakedness. And so, clothed in one situation, just fine, but the circumstances could change and the clothing would be inadequate. And so, in Exodus chapter 28, verse 42, and in Exodus chapter 20, verse 26, Moses instructed them to make for themselves some translations say linen breeches if you wonder where we got the word breeches that's where that came from and i've always wondered if that's why we call levis levis but anyway i guess that's that's another that's another sermon but they had breeches or trousers depending on your translation that they had to put on because what might be okay in one situation when the circumstances changed, that clothing wouldn't be inappropriate. It would be inappropriate because it would reveal nakedness in that situation that wasn't uh, observable otherwise. In these situations, God has given this instruction and he's calling it Shameful to expose your nakedness. And so this first biblical principle then is, it's shameful to expose one's nakedness. We need not only clothing, but we need clothing that aligns with what God's expectations are. And we need to be co- so concerned about our clothing that in one situation, it might seem okay, but that could change Walking up steps, sitting down, bending over, whatever might change the, the functionality of that garment. We have to be concerned about that just like the Levitical priests were. I, I am very reluctant usually to go to the dictionary for help in defining things. But sometimes the dictionary is very Helpful. And the New Oxford American Dictionary, which is the default integrated dictionary in most of our electronic devices, has this about modesty. Dressing or behaving so as to avoid impropriety or indecency, especially to avoid attracting sexual attention, and then it has a section that says of clothing. Not revealing or emphasizing the figure, modest dress means that hemlines must be below the knees. I thought, really? In a dictionary? And so the dictionary, a worldly, not a biblical dictionary, but a worldly dictionary defines a standard of modesty that reaches the knees, which is typically what these other entities or other institutions that we've looked at, also say. Things like research, things like employers, things like church camps and the nature. All right, so it is shameful to expose one's nakedness. Here's the second principle that uh, Paul gave in his sermon. We must not provide opportunities for fleshly lust. 1 Peter chapter... Uh, two in verse 11 cautions us against fleshly lust. Fleshly lust war against the soul. The Bible said, and so I or you shouldn't want to provide an opportunity to create a war in someone's soul. We must not provide such opportunities. Now, in response to that, some people will say, well, sin, lust, those fleshly occasions are in the eye of the beholder and that the responsibility is on the person who's looking to keep that situation from coming to that point. And to some degree, I agree with that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28 uh, records where Jesus says, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Great responsibility on on. The individual who is looking, and you've got Philippians chapter four and verse eight, where Paul says that there are certain things we are to think on, things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, things that are virtuous, things that are praiseworthy. We're to meditate on these things, and so there. Yes, there is a sense in which sin is in the be- the eye of the beholder, but it's also in the behavior of the one who is being beheld. A survey was done a number of years ago, and I have used this, these statistics in this sermon on modesty before, but it was a survey of teenage boys where they were asked, can a girl tempt a boy by the way she dresses? 98% of them said yes. Then they were asked, what body part is most problematic in temptation?" 60% said the legs. And so this demonstrates, again, in the world, working with real people about this subject matter, just how important it is for us to know what is appropriate, what is not, so that we might not provide an opportunity for lust. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 says, We're bought with a price, therefore we're to glorify God, In our body and in our spirit, which are God's. We don't want our bodies, our dress to be an instrument that detracts from the privilege and the obligation we have to glory God, glorify God. I think in just bringing these two together, the beholder and the one beheld together, I don't think there's a clearer example of how both parties play into this than 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 2 with David and Bathsheba. You have two people who are guilty of what transpired uh, from the observing and the being observed. She was bathing in public view where he could see her, and he was watching her bathe. And so sin is in the eye of the beholder. Yes, it is. But it's also a responsibility on the one who might be uh, beheld or observed. Here's the third point of observation that Paul made clothing must be consistent with godliness two passages of scripture that I will give you I'm going to just summarize them I would encourage you to go look at them and measure them for their worth on this subject the first one is first Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 where Paul talks to Timothy about the adornment of women again the pendulum swings to two sides There are situations and circumstances where dress might be too much, and the specific scenario given here was a too much situation. They were overdressing and drawing attention to themselves because of their overdressing, and it wasn't modest because it was too much, but it swings to the other side where it can be too little, and if that were the case in this particular cultural time, that would have been what? Paul addressed with Timothy. It just happened to be the other. But modest can't be too much, it can't be too little. It has to be modest. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, rather, if you look at the words that are used to describe the adornment that Paul admonishes Christian women to observe and you know we're not excluding men here by any means. It should be respectable, it should be reverent, reverent in the sense that it res- it's respectful and honors God. Thoughtful, we should put some thought into it, and it should be fit for godliness. Then the second passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Where Peter says, let not the outward adorning of braiding of hair, of wearing of jewels or gold, or putting on of apparel, again, the too much swing of the pendulum. But the same principles of truth that he gives applies to the too little as well. Because he says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptible uh, apparel of the meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. It's not a gray area, brothers and sisters. It's an area that is of great price to God and something God values when we present ourselves in a way that doesn't detract from the godliness that we speak. And it doesn't provide an opportunity for people to grow closer to sin rather than to grow closer to God. And it's shameful for us to expose our nakedness and we're responsible to know what That really means. All right. Here's the third point. I'm sorry. It's a lot. But here are some questions I want to just end with this morning. Some questions to help focus our imitation. We've talked about our education. But what about the imitation aspect of this? Here are some questions that, that I think will focus us and help us in our imitation of biblical truth. Number one, are we going to operate by instinct or intellect? You know, when we go to the clothing shelf at the store, do we operate by instinct or do we operate by intellect? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 says we're to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And then he says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When I'm shopping for clothing, I ought to ask, what is the will of the Lord? I'm not going to operate by instinct. I'm going to operate by intellect that is educated by the word of God. Here's the second one. Are we going to be sensual or spiritual? In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 15, Jeremiah said of a group of people that they were not ashamed. They couldn't even blush. They were so sensual in their interaction with the world, there was nothing that made them blush. And I wonder about people in the world and some of the things that they choose to wear do. Can they even blush? First Corinthians chapter three and verse one says, we're to be spiritual people. And Paul said of the Corinthians that they were so carnal that he couldn't even talk to them as spiritual people. And so if, if I were listening to a sermon about modesty this morning and I thought it was ridiculous and a waste of my time, I might ask myself, am I sensual or am I spiritual? Because we want to be spiritual people. Here's the third one. Are we going to be influenced or are we going to be the influence? Matthew chapter five, verses 14, we're the light of the world, city set on a hill, right? Don't. Put it under a bushel, on a candlestick. Why don't Christians just determine to be the model for the world of what appropriate appearance actually is? And let's make sure we get it right in align line with God's will. Here's the next one. Are we going to conform or are we going to challenge? There are a lot of sports today that have clothing that is just not appropriate. Took for anybody to wear, much less Christians. I think of some of the cheer outfits, some of the sports outfits, some of the things that a young lady is told by a volleyball coach, you must wear this in order to play volleyball. Are we going to conform? Are we going to kick back? Are we going to challenge those requirements? Because it's well within your right to challenge those things. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that, listen, brethren, listen, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're in the proving business here. Don't let someone tell you what you have to wear. You'd be surprised at how quickly they'll retreat when you challenge that. Number next. Number next. And this has to do more with parents. Are we going to be pals or are we going to be parents? Because sometimes we're tempted to say it's just not worth fighting this battle. But might I remind us of our obligation, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have a responsibility to be parents, not pals for our children. And then the last one are we going to be accusers? Are we going to be advisors? And what I mean by that is it's easy to look out among ourselves and see people who are inappropriately addressed and accuse them in our minds or maybe with our words to someone else. We can accuse. But what the Bible admonishes us to do is to be advisors and to help people see when they're not in alignment with the will of God. In in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul told Titus to speak the things that befit sound doctrine. He told a preacher to preach sound doctrine. And I don't mind, as a preacher, getting up here and preaching about subjects like modesty. I don't mind it at all. But that's not the period in sound doctrine. If you keep reading that passage, he says, admonish the older women to teach the younger. To do what? To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, chaste, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to the wor- their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Sound doctrine, according to Paul, that was admonished of Titus, put the onus in some situations on the members of the church to police their own. And for women, older women, more mature women, to help younger women, and in this case, who may be living by a standard of modesty that they think is right, that doesn't really align with Scripture. Some questions that I hope help us focus our imitation of biblical truth. Two things, in closing, that we don't want to do. We don't want to look so much like the world, brethren, that you can't tell the difference between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. And number two, we don't want to create a stumbling block for someone else that just might fan the flame, no pun intended there, that eventually cost them their soul. We don't want to do either one of those. And this matter of how we dress can do that. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of God's will we observe and which ones we don't. It was in the New Testament, in fact, James chapter 2 and verse 10, where this principle was illustrated. Whoever keeps the whole law yet offends in one part, he's guilty of all. And so we can't say, well, I'm I'm going to worry about this, but I'm not going to worry about that. We've got to keep the whole law of God And the way that we dress and present ourselves, not just in here, but in our public life matters. It matters to God, and I believe the Bible in the passages we have considered and others that we don't have time to consider demonstrates that great truth. If you have any question, if you have any concern about anything that I said or you want clarity about anything, I I would be happy to talk to you. And of course, you're always encouraged to talk to the ones who actually shepherd your soul, the elders, about this subject. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you really need to be because it's the greatest life possible to live. You live as part of a community of people who are focused on living lives that glorify and honor God and who want to help you do the same. How do you do that? We've enumerated that already, but it's faith, repentance, confession, baptism and water for the remission of your sins, and a willingness to live a life of faithfulness before God. So maybe that's your need this morning. We want to help you resolve that. Maybe you have some other need that we can help you with. Why don't you use this opportunity and come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas 76262. Or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon and may God bless you.